Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Thanks for joining us here on AutoLine this week. We're going to be talking about the Chinese automotive industry because our special guest today is Michael Dunn, an automotive consultant based in Asia with the company Dunn & Company and the author of a book, American Wheels, Chinese Roads, all about how General Motors got into the Chinese market. Michael, so great to have you here on AutoLine Detroit. Great to be back here in Detroit, my hometown. Yeah, that's good to have you. And also joining us today are Sharon Turlip from the Wall Street Journal, and David Welch from Bloomberg. Great having the both of you here, too. Good to be here, John. Uh, I, we can get into whole kind, all kinds of things about General Motors in China, but just standing back, what's going on in the Chinese market right now? I'm, I'm curious because we hear things are really slowing down, but car sales are up. We hear that profits are down across the board, but the luxury brands are screaming ahead, but maybe the luxury brands are, are slowing down. What is going on in China right now? As usual, it doesn't add up. Uh, you're right, luxury car sales continue to boom, making incredible profits, especially the German automakers. The rest of the market is slow, uh, maybe single-digit growth. First time in 10 years we've seen this slow of growth in the market, and people say, well, how can it be that the lower-priced cars are not moving, and yet luxuries are moving? Well, it points to the concentration of wealth in China society. When you're wealthy, you have tons of cash, and those people buying $100,000 Mercedes walk into the showroom with cash, not credit. Uh, That's China today. Looking forward, you can count on demand from China for 10 years to come. That's why automakers are so interested in getting in and staying in the game. What about overcapacity? Because that's an issue that's raised itself several times amongst analysts this year saying, whoa, they're building a lot of plants, maybe too many plants. 2012 will be a crucial year. Uh, We'll see a separation between the stronger brands and the weaker brands. There will be too much capacity and those that don't have the firepower when it comes to brands, and brands are hugely important to Chinese consumers, they'll start to fade. Look for that to happen as soon as six months from now. Haven't we already seen some incentive uh, battles yes. over there? GM had some incentives, I think, for Wuling and or Baozhun, one or the other. That's right. Uh, GM has incentives. Even the Japanese, who everywhere in the world shy away from incentives, are putting incentives on their cars in China to move them. So it's already starting. Uh, sort of price war. So where's the end game? (laughs) The end game? Uh, Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with momentum and what the Chinese consumer likes. And today, they like Volkswagen. They like the GM products. They like Hyundai. And the ones that are a little bit in trouble are the Japanese for the first time. And the other group is the Chinese themselves. The Chinese independent brands aren't that strong. This is different in China from Japan or Korea. Chinese people don't feel that strong nationalism and say, I want to buy a Geely because I love my country. They'll say, I've earned my money, I'll buy the best brand out there. And for the first time, we're seeing Chinese brands under real pressure. 
You talked about the luxury brands, and, and the Chinese tend to prefer the German luxury band, brands over there. But at the same time, we have GM, and they have big hopes for Cadillac becoming a, a you know a big time Chinese brand. I mean, how realistic is it? Do you think for GM to really, really get into that market? You know, uh, Cadillac should be a big winner in China. Uh, Chinese people admire America. They admire the power that America projects, and Cadillac would be the ideal car for them to drive around. It's just that the sharp lines on the Cadillac and the smaller-than-expected length of the Cadillacs today put off Chinese consumers. Uh, they even have a term for it they call Ch Cadillacs benzhong, which translates as dumb and heavy. Now, this is not a good moniker to have in China. Wow. And Cadillac has, <laughs> has its work cut out to it to say, no, we're not. We're actually modern, cutting-edge, and something you want to buy. So they're, they're working on it, but so far it's been a tough, tough row. Yeah, last I looked at the sales numbers, Audi, which of course is number one in China in the luxury segment, and BMW and Mercedes easily outsell Cadillac. I, I want to say 10 to 1. 10 to 1, easily. Um, between, the th between those three automakers, Mercedes, BMW, and Audi, they account for 90% of the market. And the luxury market. Luxury market, and outsell Cadillac by at least 10 to 1. Just why, to why is that? GM has been successful with Buick. Mm. Now with Chevrolet, they've got Wuling and Baojun on a very small you know, entry-level end of the market. They're good everywhere except in luxury. Mm -hmm. uh, now Cadillac, in terms of product offerings, they really only have two relevant cars for the Chinese market, the SRX and the CTS. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a big disadvantage, but why isn't the brand ever caught on? E even the two cars they have don't sell in big volume for what they are. You know, I think it's as simple as they were expecting a long, big, long sedan with a front hood that goes forever. And instead, they found, you know, stealth-like, stealth-inspired designs that are smaller and more compact. And um, the Mercedes, BMW, and Audi all had to stretch their sedans to become popular in China. Well, that's right. They even have an A4L over there. Yes, A4L, A6L. Oh. Cadillac is also stretched, but it's not stretched enough to convince the Chinese consumer that this is really a, a big, long sedan that they're hoping to see. You know, their minds go back to the when Nixon first came across and was riding in the Lincolns and the Cadillacs, it went from here to the end of the block. Maybe there's hope for tail fins yet. Yes, a comeback. Why not? Why not? Sure, they're It'll... thinking of 67 Eldorado DeVilles that were you know, like 37 feet long with those big, huge, pointy tail fins. Exactly and right. Bullets. Michael, the Chinese, too, are really trying to become the dominant player in electric cars. They're uh, putting all kinds of policies in place to really drive that from incentives for automakers as well as for consumers, like we have here, but probably more generous than we have here. Do you see electric cars catching on there? So far, the results for hybrids and electric cars are, are not very encouraging in China. That's right. They sell a small number of cars every year, electric cars, less than 1,000 a year. For all the headlines we hear about EVs in China, no, they're not moving. Why aren't they moving? Same reason they're not moving the rest of the world. They're very expensive. And the Chinese consumer is worried about how far he's going to be able to, he or she's going to be able to drive in the car. Now, the Chinese government is extremely worried about dependence on oil. They see the quagmires that the United States has gotten into in the Middle East. They don't want to follow that. China now imports 60 percent of their oil. Let's move to EVs as soon as we can. But getting there means how can we get our costs down and how can we make sure that the range is sufficient to persuade everyday Chinese consumers, it's okay to buy. They're not there yet. Are they installing charging stations uh, as quickly as the U.S. is? And I say that you know, the U.S. isn't exactly putting them up left and right everywhere. Yes, the U.S. is less slow 
than than China. <laughs> China is not. There's <laughs> a lot of talk, but no we're not seeing the action yet. I mean, that can change pretty quickly, though, if the government decides to make. I mean, it, they have a little bit more influence on and. They, they are, and there are factions within the central government at the highest levels, who are some of whom are saying, look, we need to go EV, we need to leapfrog the rest of the world, that's the solution for China, it's obvious. And others say, no, this is not the Chinese way, the Chinese way to be very pragmatic, hybrids work, let's go with hybrids, we'll get to electrics eventually, and this kind of disagreement at the top means that there isn't the spending on stations yet. It may come, but at the very highest powers in China, they're not settled on what story they want to p portray for their, for their future auto industry. Michael, we've seen the, the Chinese really become, I, and I'm talking broad brush here, mm -hmm. there's obviously a whole lot of differences within the Chinese automotive industry, we'll get into that, but certain Chinese companies have become very adept at exporting. Right now they're going to emerging markets. Mm -hmm because I think they want to get their feet wet and try out exporting that way, and plus there aren't quite the strict emission and fuel economy and safety standards. That's right. When do you think we'll see Chinese cars end up in the American market? All right. We could see them tomorrow because Buick is capable of producing a very high-quality car in China and sending it here. But the global automakers do not want to export from China because if they do that, they have to take half of their earnings and give it to the Chinese partner. So take all your global joint ventures out of the picture. There's no incentive for them to export from China. They don't want to share the profits. You're left with the Chinese automakers themselves, the Geely's, the Cherries, and the BYD's. They're not capable of reaching our standards for safety emissions and overall. Although they're getting there. Getting there. They're getting closer. Because they just, uh, was it Geely, I think, or Cherry? I can't remember which now. Just, just a four-star rating from the Euro, Euro. NCAP. Yes. And most people don't know this. Our standards are more, more strict than what Europe has, but, mm -hmm. but the Chinese are absolutely going to learn how to do it. That's right. And we're seeing them, first of all, just as you said, going to developing markets. This year they entered Australia. If they can make it in Australia and Europe, they say it won't be but three to five years before we're ready for the U.S. But they've seen what's happened to Hyundai, and they're very wary of coming in too early, spoiling their brand and having to restart. So they said, let's, let's experiment elsewhere. When the time's right, we'll come in. And, and just for anybody watching who didn't know, yeah, Hyundai is doing great right now in the mm -hmm. American market. But for the first 20 years, they really stumbled well, badly. How much right. will we see the presence of Chinese automakers, you know, not necessarily in, as, at car dealerships, but mm -hmm. in parts manufacturers in the I mean, they, they, you know, they bought Next here, a big supplier yes. here in Michigan. I mean, will they get in that way? Uh, that's a, a excellent insight, you know. The Japanese and the Koreans came over with cheap and cheerful cars, and it was front and center. Everybody could see it. The Chinese are moving in very quietly. As you mentioned, next year, also just outside of Detroit, they have uh, bought a Delphi testing system that they called uh, Beijing Machine Industries. You don't know it's a Chinese company from the outside. There's no Chinese markings, but China's already in Detroit. Thousands of Chinese engineers are here laying the groundwork, and we may see a sort of a ground-up uh, entry of China's auto industry here in the Midwest. Event, eventually the cars will come, but they're laying the groundwork now. As you mentioned in your book, American Wheels, Chinese Roads, General Motors, you, you really track how GM was able to get into the, the Chinese market. But one of the thing I, things I found fascinating in your book is how the major Chinese companies are not only owned by the government, they, they belong to the city. Shanghai Automotive Industry Corporation is owned by the city of Shanghai. Explain a little bit behind that, because for our Western minds, that's hard to get our minds around. That's right. You, you can't just go into China and start selling cars, Buicks and Chevys. First rule, you need to have a partner. 
You, and when you have a partner, that partner has to be a state enterprise. And that state enterprise will own at least half of your business. The law, 50% or more of every joint venture in China belongs to the Chinese. So that's rule number one. Then you get in and you say, well, my partner is my business partner, but they also are a wing of the city of Shanghai in GM's case. And that city of Shanghai belong, belongs ultimately up the power ladder to the central government and the Communist Party. So the partners in your business relationship are also government officials and party members. It makes for a very complicated arrangement. Uh, it's not all commercial. And yet, that whole industry is growing by leaps and bounds. So even though there's this very complicated mishmash of relationships you have to manage, mm -hmm. someone's figuring out how to make it work. The Chinese like the scent of money. So <laughs> no matter if they're the entrepreneur from Zhejiang or the government official from Shanghai, what's the quickest way to my promotion inside the party? Make a lot of bucks for the city of Shanghai. Now, the, these yeah. joint ventures, there's a lot of concern in the long run that mm -hmm. the Chinese companies and the Chinese governments will just shove aside Volkswagen, GM, all of the global players who've joined this gold rush to the Chinese market, gave away half of the venture, have, have ownership in the venture, and share technology. That once the technology's in place, they're gone, the Chinese will take it over. How realistic is that? Give us, give us the read on, on how long before that happens, if it's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say, and this is uh, with respect to the Chinese and their abilities, as soon as they're able to do things on their own, they'll do, they will. Does yes. that mean shoving the joint venture partners out? Mm, gently. Uh, <laughs> so squeezing the joint Squeezing the joint ventures. <laughs> ventures. Currently, the joint ventures bring Mercedes, Audi, BMW, Buick, bring beautiful brand names, and that's what the Chinese consumers love. So the Chinese partners say, hey, this is working for us and for you now. If one day we're able to create our own brands that are of equal power to yours, hey, uh, may the best man win. But for the time being and for the next five years, the Chinese will probably milk it, ease it along, have this cooperation while they're building their own strength in brands. How adept are they at doing that, though? Uh, there is a little bit of limitation because some people say that the global automakers have effectively co-opted their partners and say, why do you want to go and build a Chinese brand? We have enough brands here in China already, and aren't you making a lot of money with us right now? No need to go build your own brand, is there? You're getting promotion next year, aren't you? That works today. <laughs> uh, we'll see in the future how, how long. The central government doesn't like that. They say, we, we asked you, Shanghai, to build, to be the vanguard of our own auto industry with our own brands. And what are you guys doing over there? So there's pressure from above to build their own brands, and there's pressure from their partner to just do as they've been doing, making money together. And then there's what consumers actually want, which... That's right. Yeah. That's right, and, no. and this, is, this is where the global automakers are placing all their bets. They're saying, I can't control the regulations, and in fact, one day I might be pushed out. But in the meantime, I'm going to please and make my customer here in, Ch in China as happy as I possibly can. So they never forget my brand, and they wouldn't allow it if one day the Chinese government said, here's the door. That's, that's the sort of dynamic going on with the brands. Well, one of the ways GM's trying to kind of avoid that exact situation is to try to tie itself to, to SAIC, to its Chinese partner mm -hmm. in other markets in as many mm -hmm. ways as possible. So that way, so that way you know, SAIC is depending on GM 
uh, not just, you know, not, that it's kind of a two-way street. I mean, is this even, is this something that you think they can, they can do before five years passes and they're going to get kicked out? Yeah, GM's, you're right, getting very tight with SAIC, joint venture for India, joint venture for Southeast Asia, joint cross-ownership. Uh, they call it uh, sleeping in the same beds, dreaming different dreams. Uh, they keep sleeping together. Uh, <laughs> and it's working for the time being. And, yeah, five years from now, I fully expect that the global automakers will still be in China. Uh, but there's no, never underestimate the Chinese ambition to be the kings of their own home market. Will there ever be a point where the WTO steps in and tries to make this a more level playing field? Will they ever have the leverage to do that? They should have the leverage. There are some corners that say it'll be trumped by the CTO, China Trade Organization. They make the rules. <laughs> going for, They have all the money. They make the rules. They do. They have cash. They hold a lot of countries' debt. Three trillion dollars in and, and foreign currency reserves, they have a lot of leverage, and they know it. So, Michael, who's, who's really biggest in China right now? Because I hear General Motors running around saying we're the biggest, mm -hmm. and they have this joint venture with SAIC that we've talked about. But Volkswagen also has a joint venture with SAIC, and, by the way, has a joint venture with FAW. And when I add up the sales numbers, looks to me like Volkswagen by far is number one in China, not General Motors. How does this all break down? <laughs> Doesn't it depend on whether you count Wu Ling and Baozhen? Exactly. Exactly. So if you're talking sedans, cars, passenger, car, passenger vehicles, most people would say VW's market leader. They sell two million this year against GM's about a million, so two to one. But when you add in Wu Ling, you add another, the small minivans are 1,000 cc, you know. Mm -hmm. Like Not the Hatsu kind of vehicles. Yeah, the Hatsu little. Uh, then there's another million plus. With that number, GM can say, hey, we're the biggest global automaker in China. And technically that's correct. But within the auto industry, there's recognition. VW's. But are know, you just talking Volkswagen brand? What if you throw in Audi and uh, now Seat and yeah. Skoda are getting into the Chinese? Volkswagen has many other brands. So when you lump them all together. is there's There's no question that Volkswagen is king of the hill in the China's car market today. Uh, they do have not only the VWs, Audi sells, is the top luxury car maker, and Skoda is one of the fastest growing brands that was introduced three years ago. VW is a powerhouse in China as it's become globally. Does Volkswagen uh, make good profits in China? The reason I asked this, I looked up the numbers. When I, uh, General Motors does not break out its Chinese operations, but if you lump all of Asia together, mm -hmm. GM sells 30% more cars in Asia, and the overwhelming majority of that has got to be China. Mm -hmm. It sells 30% more cars in Asia than it does in North America, but it makes five times more profit mm -hmm. in North America. So mm -hmm. uh, that makes me wonder. It doesn't look to me like GM's making all that much money. Maybe it's because they've got to give half of it away to their partners. That's right. Half of it goes to the partner, and then the average transaction price in China is right around fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars. I think in North America it's almost double, double that. So you're taking half the price and then taking half of the profit on half the price and giving it to your partner. That really cuts into profits. But I got to believe that the, the the BMWs, the Audis, the Mercedes Benzes, the Porsches, who are importing cars mm -hmm. from Germany, oh. are making they're, whopping big profits. They're killing it. They're, they sell at premiums higher than anywhere else in the world. The Chinese propensity to spend on luxury cars is unmatched. Because they're taxed incredibly. In, in tax. Uh, uh, 
you can count on whatever it costs in the United States is at least double the price in China. Yeah, somebody told me that I think an Escalade, Cadillac Escalade costs like one hundred twenty or one hundred thirty thousand dollars or something like that. That's it, at least, at least. So uh, the Germans are making unbelievable profits in China. So so much money that when you talk to them, they're almost sheepish about it. Uh, yeah, but you have to have a brand <laughs> that commands that kind of pricing to it pay does. for the taxes and cover a big margin. The other thing that's, that's really interesting about your book is you talk about it's a whole new ball game in dealing with China. Mm -hmm. as, as Americans or Westerners going there, even if you've been in Japan or Thailand or other Asian countries, forget about it. Going to China is altogether different. Mm -hmm. Why is that so? Just cultural? Totally different. Language, just to start with. Imagine a Chinese guy coming here to Detroit to do business with the automakers and he doesn't speak English. He only speaks Chinese. No, he's he got to speak English. So, first of all, penetrating the language is highly, uh, not, not easy at all. But more importantly, within China, the culture is uh, messy. Let me just say in, in, in a nice way, uh, I'll give you an example. The Chinese like to say the top makes the policy, the bottom takes countermeasures. So, you hear, you arrive in China, you say, well, the rules are Beijing said that such and such, and if I do these things, I'll be all okay and we can go into business. Then day two, the local locality says, actually, that rule means this. And it's not what they said up there. It's what I'm saying down here. So you say, well, which one is it? Isn't that what happened with the uh, proposed sale of Hummer to, mm -hmm. uh, I forget the name of the company now. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Tung yeah, yeah. The, the, which was basically a heavy equipment maker. Yes. And I think the local government approved the deal, and then the... Uh, uh, government in Beijing said, wait a minute, we never agreed to that or That's something right. to that effect. What's, didn't you check with us first? No, this is not going to happen. <laughs> so you need to work both the central government and the, and the local government. And when Ford and GM were competing for the rights to partner with Shanghai and build cars over there, Ford was heavily influential with the central government and GM was tight with Shanghai. And they didn't know which one was going to, and it turns out Shanghai had the leverage and GM won the bid. It's just not ever on solid ground in China. You said earlier that the Japanese are not doing so hot over mm. there. It's, it's GM and the Germans, basically. Uh, why is that? Is this a throwback to the old nationalistic uh, Japanese and Chinese don't get along, memories of World War II sort of thing that they're still holding the Japanese at bay? There's definitely that sentiment. Although I have to say the Japanese are there, and Nissan, for example, sold a million cars last year. So they're there, but they're not at the top. Um, preventing them from rising to the top is, is just this sort of thing. Chinese customers, given a choice, will go American or German versus Japanese much, much of the time based on sentiment. Uh, and it's that, same, it's that exact thing. It's history, basically. History plays a part. Plays a part. Now, the is other, that a generational thing? Maybe younger buyers, younger buyers don't care and the older buyers remember? That should be the case. The other thing happening with younger buyers is they're more enamored than ever with brand and making a statement. And f their feeling is that the Germans and the Americans offer a real emotional statement with their brands. And the Japanese offer reliability, uh, e economy, mm, this kind of not really appealing to us. So. I think I've heard more than once the comparison of China now to the American auto industry at the beginning of the century with, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of... Do you really think we'd see China, you know, in 50 years from now really get down to, you know, just a handful of brands and look like the U.S.? Or are there differences 
um, more differences than maybe we, we recognize. One, one big difference uh, is that government has ownership in all of these companies. So people are always going to ask me, when's consolidation coming? When's consolidation? They have 85 brands. Or when, this is impossible. It's only possible in China because the government owns, has a hand in all these companies. Uh, when there's a downturn or a slowdown, we will see consolidation, but nothing is quick or as consolidated as big three or big five. It'll be maybe big 10, big 15. The government's been talking about doing that for some time. Forever. They want yeah. four, maybe five really big companies and another four, maybe five smaller ones. And mm -hmm. they've been talking consolidation, like you say, for years, mm -hmm. but they have not made it happen. Is it because mm -hmm. there's so much ownership, that a government ownership in all these companies, that it has to accommodate all those needs? That's precisely it. So the local government says, my interest is employment and accumulation of assets in my backyard. I don't know about the rest of the country. I don't care about it. And I'll keep operating as long as I possibly can, even at break even, just as long as I can put people to work. So you say, well, this is totally, if it was a market economy, we would have had consolidation already. But when Shanghai starts talking to Beijing, Shanghai says, you country bumpkins, and Beijing people go, you stingy city folks, can't stand each other. So imagine trying to work out a deal where we'll merge. No, 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 no we're not going to merge. That's what's holding consolidation back in China. So government is, it's really a federation. Uh, it is, it is. The government <laughs> is a federation and very active in business, um, pushing their agendas at the local level. We're getting down towards the end here. What would be your advice to American companies, American automotive companies mm -hmm. that want to do business in China? Shy away, be careful, or jump in, but just go in with your eyes wide open? Get in there. Uh, a lot of people ask me, how do you make money in China? You know, how, 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 how did you make money? How does GM make money? There's no, no other way but to get in and get ready for a battle. Uh, the Chinese are tough competitors, relentless competitors. You've got to bring your A game. If you persevere, keep pushing, hold your ground, you can make money, and they'll respect you, and they'll say, okay, you deserve some money. But you won't walk in, and no one will do you any favors. You've got to earn every penny. And suppliers, they don't have to have joint ventures, they don't. do they? No. So maybe you could really make, uh, on a percentage basis, more profit in China very, going in as a... Very attractive for suppliers, John. Going in, they supplying VW, the Chinese, GM, the Germans. Um, maybe export, too. And export. Really nice, quietly, suppliers have a nice setup. They can own 100%. They can supply a lot of people. Michael, I could talk to you all afternoon here, all day long. I really should say it's been terrific having you come in. I highly recommend this book. American Wheels, Chinese Roads. But thanks so much for coming in and talking to us all about China. Terrific to be here. Thank you, John. Sharon Turlip, great having you here as well as David Welch. And I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.